Last year, welcome to season five of Investment Uncut. It's great to have you for the first episode we're recording together. Great to be back. Very, very exciting. And of course, you missed recording for the last episode because you also missed our investment conference. Hopefully, though, you found our first episode a helpful recap of it. Yeah, absolutely. I got a bit of FOMO, fear of missing out that I wasn't able to go to the conference. Although don't feel too sorry for me because I was on a beach in Cornwall enjoying myself. Yeah, I was sad I couldn't miss it, but I got to listen to the podcast. I think I might have got to listen to it before anyone, before you actually released it. And it really made me feel like I was there, like you could kind of hear the buzz around and you had conversations with so many people. So I thought it was a really, really good first episode, made me feel less bad about missing the conference itself. And we will link to it in the show notes, partly because it's relevant for today's episode as well. So today we're speaking to Amlan Roy, who was one of the LCP speakers at the LCP conference, but he has so much good stuff to say that we couldn't limit him to just three minutes of content, which is what we limited everyone else to. (laughs) So we have a whole episode, which we'll share with you in just a minute. But last year, I wanted to mark first that we are, of course, releasing this in early October, October being Black History Month. So while it's not the specific topic of this conversation today... We have got some relevant episodes that we thought we'd reshare with you. So Gavin Lewis, we spoke to last, I say last summer, this summer really, not very long ago about his book. And we also spoke slightly longer ago to Mamawa Toure on microaggressions. So both, I think, really relevant episodes that maybe help people think about Black History Month while we're in that month. Yes, absolutely. As you say, Black History Month, well, it's Black History Month in the UK. I think in the States, they do it in February. Obviously, that doesn't mean that discussing and thinking about Black History is limited to October, but I think it provides us with a good opportunity to reflect on these themes. So definitely going back and listening to those episodes is a good shout. The theme this year is a really interesting one for Black History Month. It's saluting our sisters. So I'm looking forward to seeing what goes on for that. But yeah, a really important month to mark, I think. Absolutely. And very final, before we share the main content for today's episode, just wanted to give listeners a sense of what they can expect from season five. Appreciate that the last episode was a bit of a frenzy, which we recorded, of course, mainly at the investment conference. So season five, a couple of small changes. One of them we flagged already. That's that it will be myself last year and Jacob Shah rotating in terms of being co-host. Another one you may have noticed from last episode and for this one as well, 30 to 35 minutes max. So we're going to be really strict with ourselves, keep these episodes commuter friendly or running friendly. Or sitting down, having a bath friendly if you're like me and don't run. Yeah. If you don't want to spend a whole hour in the bath, never fear. (laughs) It's 30 to 35 minutes these days. Then one new feature, really small segment every time, not today, but from the next episode onwards, views from the boardroom. So we'll be speaking to people who commonly sit in board meetings, just seeing what sort of trends are in terms of what the big conversations are in in those meetings. So I hope listeners enjoy all of that and hope listeners enjoy the rest of season five. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In this podcast series, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to help bring clarity to your investment decisions. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provides investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK and beyond, including pension funds, charities, wealth managers, and sovereign investors. Find out more at lcp.com. So today we are delighted to be joined by Amlan Roy, Senior Advisor, Macro Research at LCP. Amlan, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Mary. Thanks to you and Lassia, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Well, good, because we have plenty of questions for you today. But to start, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your role? 
My role is as a senior advisor in macro research. Macro research entails part of supporting broader investment. LCP is trying to engage with sovereign wealth funds, central banks, ministries of finance, and international pension funds. I've been seeing them for about 25, 30 years, but wearing a research hat. By way of background, I'm a former finance and macro professor. So I'd, having taught derivatives, asset allocation, asset pricing, as well as macro monetary policy, I think I'm slightly uniquely placed given both buy and sell side background to make sense of what policymakers do or investors do. So hopefully over my tenure here, I can partner, learn and engage with the LCP team Definitely. And I'm sure there's a lot that we can learn from you. One thing we do like to do is find out a bit about our guests that we wouldn't be able to find on their CV or on their LinkedIn. So could you tell us something about you that we wouldn't be able to find on your LinkedIn profile? This is a bit like Spike Lee. I live by my values and everyone who works with me, at least within teams I run, live and know my credo. My first credo is be a better human being before you're a good professional. So being a good human being is absolutely core and central. And the second thing, which is more specific to me, it's not something that my team needs to do or anyone else. I aspire and I always work to being the hardest working researcher in the world. So those are two things. No one can take away the ability from me of working hard. I still clock in my 14 to 16 hour days and keep happy at it. Have you in your career had any competition for that hardest working researcher in the world? How did you deal with that? I hope my best friend, who's one of the best health researchers in Monash University, used to be at Harvard School of Public Health. He and I at undergrad put ourselves to the test saying we could work hard. That's something no one could take. I hope he's not out competing me on that. Let's get to our main conversation today. As last year said, we've got so many questions for you. And you have, over your career, become a very much an expert in demographics. I really wanted to start with you telling us how we should be thinking about demographics and perhaps what the traditional descriptions or definitions miss. I must confess, I did not know how to spell demographics because I was brought into Credit Suisse to look at emerging markets risk and advise central banks, etc., how to create financial system architecture on crisis models. Then my boss asked me to do demographics. Over time, I discovered that the traditional way of looking at demographics was not quite correct. And the biggest management guru of 20th century, arguably, Peter Drucker had the following to say, demographics is the single most important thing that people don't pay attention to, but when they do pay attention, they miss the point. And I then opened up the English dictionary and etymologically searched for the word origin of demographics. Demos is people, graphos is characteristics. Nowhere was age in that. So I decided to extend the characteristics of people to things that matter to me and matter to investors. Number one, all of us as consumers from the time we are born till the date we die. And over a big span of our lives, we are workers. As workers, we make up the GDP. As consumers, we consume the bulk of GDP. So I would like people to think of individuals and every individual as a consumer and a worker. Maybe retirees and young kids don't work, but they are consuming. But over the adult lifespan, most of us are consumers and workers. Why does demographics matter? Because demographics affects macro fundamentals like GDP growth, inflation, debt, current account, capital flows. It also affects, as I show in my book and in all my research, things such as 
via migration or without migration, equity prices, bond prices, yields, real estate, commodities, and through them, strategic asset allocation. And therefore, demographics is crucial to understand in conjunction with even liabilities because actuaries have focused on demographics being liability driven. Mm -hmm. But most of my research shows demographics and asset prices. That's because my PhD training as well as my teaching was on asset prices. Teaching derivatives from 1987, I believe that demographics has a lot to help us understand in terms of not just equities and bonds, but also, as I showed, in terms of risk-neutral densities to risk-averse densities. That's where later we'll talk about risk preferences come in. So most of finance sticks to risk neutrality. Mary is risk-neutral. Last year is risk-averse. We can assume the same formula and get different pricing. So we need to understand demographics in conjunction with other things. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of the time we think about things like GDP, inflation, and we don't think about people. But one thing that you make really clear in your book is that people are at the heart of all of economics and finance, which is why this is so relevant. I mean, are there any misconceptions you think that people have about demographics? Yes. Three popular misconceptions are first, demographics is about age. My wife and I are the same age. We both have five degrees. She grew up in one city. I grew up in 11 cities. She wouldn't be seen near an Arsenal game or a cricket football, cricket match, test match, or on a football pitch, yet she'll be in a concert, she'll be in a museum, etc. Very different preferences. My best friend is a single child. I'm one out of three children. He grew up in a village. I grew up in a village in another part of India. Very, very different. Just because of where we grew up. I grew up 15 miles away from the rainiest spot in the world, rained four hours every day. He grew up in a torrid desert. Very different. And those are things which affect our preferences. We need to note that just because somebody five years later will be five years older than they are today, they may not even be remotely similar to somebody who's five years older than them today. So that's the first thing. Age is not a summary statistic. Second is everybody thinks demographics is long term. Wrong. It's your consumption, your preferences and your work patterns, whether you're working from home, whether you're working from uh, office, whether you're working on computers, whether you're working without computers, whether she's seeing a client and not on the computer, you're on the computer. And all these things affect how GDP or corporate profitability works. And my last statement is demographics affects the income statement and balance sheet of every company, every country, every household. And therefore, demographics deserves to be center stage of understanding macroeconomics. And the two leading Nobel laureates wrote a book called Animal Spirits, trying to examine why economists did not predict the global financial crisis. And one of the key things is we did not understand the psychology and behavior of investors and consumers. Demographics dovetails nicely into behavioral economics and behavioral finance. So those are the three things. Age is not a summary statistic. Demographics has immediate, short-term, medium-term, long-term effects. Your consumption is affecting inflation today, not 10 years later. Your demands for savings and investment products is affecting the returns today, not 10-year bond yields. And those are things we need to take on board. Shall we just delve into a little bit more detail on that macroeconomic point? So you've mentioned GDP and productivity is something that's being spoken about a huge amount, at least in the UK at the moment. What is the link between demographics and those features and how are they influenced? It's not my theory per se, but it's a theory that 
the European Central Bank and macroeconomists developed on understanding what contributes to GDP growth. And there's a demographic decomposition of three factors. If you were given factor one, last year factor two, and I was giving factor three, we add them up, we would totally add up to GDP growth. So these are the three underpinnings. Number one is working age population growth, which is total number of people in working age group, let's say between 20 to 64 today in UK versus last year. And that growth factor gives you one component of GDP growth. And the second growth factor is called labor productivity growth. Let's consider myself as a laborer who works in McDonald's and I flip burgers. So how many burgers did I flip this year relative to last year gives me the productivity growth. If I were a researcher, how many more papers did I write? If I were a client in my current role, how many more clients did I see this year compared to last? That's a growth factor. The third factor is labor utilization growth, and that relies on number of hours worked. Not too much changes there. You could work from 40 to 50, or if you're an inefficient geek like me, you may want to work 100 hours and find that your productivity per hour is going up, so you try to work even more hours. But that's the third component. And the main reason why GDP growth in the world is going around, I've been showing since 2004, 2005, is a sad reason. It's labor productivity growth. And labor productivity growth is going down as populations age, and also as people become richer, they partake a little bit more of leisure compared to working. I argue, and I've been arguing, that growth in the developed world is going down but can be easily fixed by employing more women. We do not treat women equally. We don't give them the same labor possibilities. We don't even compensate them similarly, despite the fact that in G20, there are more women university graduates than men. And this is from the year 1999 onwards. So we've gone nearly 24 years without giving women close to parity. We want to save the world, but we don't want to address the elephant in the room because it makes male kind or male humankind look a little bit not so good, let's put it that way. So that's one solution. Second is labor force productivity of the youth. With technology and youth, you can improve productivity. So that's one solution. The third way you could improve it is through selective migration. And post-COVID, what Australia, Canada, and a few other countries have shown, because they've not managed to take in high productivity skilled migrants, their GDP growth rate has been lower. So those are some of the solutions that you can adopt to increase labor productivity. And I would say the challenge to UK is, as Charlie Bean said in your conference, Mary, that we really need to invest much more in public services, as you and I well know, public services investment in UK, in education, in nursing, in medical services, in police, and social care has gone down. Not only do we need to increase the investment there, but we need to engender private sector to participate more in that. And we may have a better social purpose in doing that through the lens of advocacy that LCP does. So does this potentially pose opportunities to investors if we are encouraging private sector investment in these areas? Absolutely, because I do think that government budgets, as I claim, and that takes me to the next thing, public debt is at an all-time high, and that's put a strangle on what potential growth can be. We've never seen debt that high, and that's public debt. That's on account of aging. That's on account of unsustainable promises on healthcare pensions and long-term care. So what can government do? Government can increase some of its productivity, but can also partner. That's good. Public-private partnership is learning both ways. Government has certain advantages. Private sector has certain advantages. But if net-net overall society 
can gain from it and we can create more jobs and be more productive, there's nothing to lose. I have seen both in the government, a lot of good private sector people going and contributing and likewise, people leaving government and coming and contributing very well to private sector. A case in point is Mr. Steve Webb, who works in pensions and is now trying to get public-private partnerships going in terms of changing, as we say in LCP, challenging and changing the status quo of DB pensions. Amnon, I'm really conscious of time and we've got so much to cover. I want to pivot slightly. You mentioned risk appetite and differences in risk appetite. Could you expand on that point, please? Yes. So this is something that rational expectations, economics and economics that I taught, etc. Is We did very complicated models, assuming your supercomputer one, last year's supercomputer two, but that would assume full rationality. Yet experiments done in MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Iowa, where I graduated from and we did experiments, giving people gambles, asking people to choose from risks of taking lotteries, to vote on precedents, etc., showed that risk tolerances are different, they change over time, and they moderate over time. Assuming everyone's a supercomputer allows us the simplicity and naivety to take one trajectory of absolutely well-thought-out asset allocation, but no one's a supercomputer because even the best, highest IQ person in MIT violates the laws of rationality in two or three minutes. So if you were to break that down, we know that some people have very high risk aversion, some people have less risk aversion, and some people are very risk-loving. So when I used to go and see the largest clients in pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, etc., I would take a laptop and show them different risk profiles with different strategic asset allocation, show them different kind of risk management techniques by taking callers and ports and other kinds of swaptions so that they can make sure that given their investment principles, given their risk tolerance, they arrive at different solutions. Let me give you an example. Two of the largest UK pension funds, top five in UK, I'm going back to 2015, Investment Committee 1 says, we do not want to invest in hedge funds and real estate. Investment Committee 2 says we want to. What does that reflect? Everything else, their funding ratios are nearly the same. They've been evaluated by some of your competitors with similar kind of triennial valuations. Yet the recommended strategic asset allocation is different because they want to cut chop out some amount of the potential risk gains and they want to kind of do other kinds of risk management. So it's important to understand that even things where we talk about derivatives with risk neutral densities, those are easy to do. Now there's behavioral finance from Santa Clara and in Berkeley. And I did this, I think, probably eight, nine years ago with the biggest pension fund in Netherlands, where I showed them that, yes, this is a closed firm solution in terms of equities to bonds. But if you allow for risk aversion, it widens out in terms of the range of things that you could go for. And I suppose that diversity and the fact that everyone isn't a supercomputer effectively is why markets operate in the way that they do. Because if everyone made completely rational decisions all the time, everyone would invest the same. You'd have potentially more systemic risks. Absolutely. And you won't have much diversification. Life would be very boring. You would have the same pasta or pizza. As I am on record in 2004, saying at an Allianz conference, gone are the days of 60-40, traditional equities and bonds. Government bonds are no longer probably as admissible. Now you should look for corporate bonds, emerging markets bonds, infrastructure bonds, and other kinds of alternative assets. So pasta and pizza are no longer flavor of the day. You go for Russian food, which could be real estate, Indian food, infrastructure, Chinese food commodities, and so on and so forth. And that said, just 
to kind of give people a flavor of the cuisine is no longer a set menu. Should we talk a bit about how demographics affects the pricing of each of these cuisines? Your Indian food equities and Absolutely. your Absolutely. Before food I bonds. go out there, I would like to say that in 2002, I developed six sectors that I thought are very important for demographics. Mm-hmm. And those six sectors, in the context of that, I'll move on to asset prices, I've not changed. Number one is pharma and biotech, because I found, and it's there in my book, a big chapter on health, that the causes of deaths are different and the health systems are unprepared to deal with that notwithstanding COVID, even the fact that MSME, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's are the biggest killers in developed countries and in developing countries, diphtheria, malaria, tuberculosis, we need to have pharma biotech at the core of physical better quality of life. Second biggest sector I talk about is financial services. And that's because Today, an 85-year-old woman in Japan needs a very different insurance and asset allocation product if she's going to live till 105 than a 65-year-old Japanese woman who's looking 40 years ahead. So we need to develop different products as we are going ahead. And I will tell you that over the last 25 years before you were in your career, the options available to me were very different for investments than are available to people like you and my daughters in just in terms of the products, in terms of the investment spread, in terms of the REITs in terms of other derivatives, et cetera. So that's very good. Financial services, we need very different products. And just to also quote at a conference that Larry Fink and I spoke at 2015 in New York, he ended the conference saying something similar to me, but more pointed saying that only 20% of the products that we know we'll need in 2030 exist in 2015. The third sector which is important is infrastructure. We need different kinds of infrastructure, whether it's buildings, schools, whatever, in the broadest sense of infrastructure. Fourth sector that we talk about out there is emerging markets. And then we also talk about another sector which is more like thinking about sustainability, water, climate change, etc. So these are sectors which are important. Now let's move to asset pricing. While GDP growth, debt, current account, interest rates, all matter in changing the environment within which investments operates. What does equity price depend on? Let's take the dividend discount model or let's take the EVA model. It ultimately depends on cash flows, which you want to discount. Let's look at the numerator, dividends. Those cash flows, where do they come from? They come based on profits. Remember, I talked about consumers. Consumers for any firm are revenues. Workers are costs. Revenues minus cost affect income statement and PNL, and thereby they affect the dividends. On the denominator, you've got interest rates and growth factors. Interest rates are again affected by demographics. So if there's a big supply versus investment gap, as Bernanke thought, and we talked about in the macro workshop, as well as what I talked in the investment thing, you've got savings investment gaps, which affect interest rates. Interest rates then affects the cost of capital. Cost of capital affects projects, which affects again the valuation. So that's equities and bonds and interest rates. Long-term interest rate again has to do with the fact that the biggest controllers of long-term interest rates today are people who most investors and even policymakers miss out on. And in 2006, we wrote a report and friends of mine wrote a report called Dealing with the New Giants, Rethinking the Role of Pension Funds. So pension funds and insurance companies control the long end of the yield curve. The short end is controlled by central banks. The demand and supply again is the long end. And this goes back to what Steve Hodder talked about looking at demand supply gaps. These are things that I've discussed with him and shown him that the biggest pension funds in Netherlands and the biggest 
French Treasury issuance was based on that. So that's equities, bonds, and therefore equity premium also comes on this. There's a brilliant paper written by a good friend of mine, Andrew Ang, who's at BlackRock. He's head of ETFs and smart beta out there, along with Angela Madaloni, who's in the ECB. It shows how demographics affects the equity risk premium. So equity risk premium, again, I've written papers on how the equity risk premium is very different across different countries. Why is it different? It goes back to the point that Mary made. The risk tolerance in emerging markets in a big emerging market like Brazil is very different than in an emerging market, which is poor, could be India or could be Nepal, could be Sri Lanka, or could be even worse, Afghanistan, or some war-ravaged country. So that's equity risk premium. Then we move to real estate. Just for a sec, before we go to real estate, I mean, one thing that strikes me is when you talk through the equity pricing model, it becomes quite obvious that really every input is dependent on demographics. Yet, I don't think that many investors are appreciating that. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, they've come around. If you read my book now and you see my presentation, Stan Fisher, who ran the IMF, ran the Bank of Israel, has coached Ben Bernanke and a lot of Nobel laureates, admitted that even the three-year treasury bill and the swap rates, etc., are dependent on demographics because it is your preferences and demands. So if Mary and you go into the market and you take a one-month treasury bill or a three-month treasury bill, that affects what happens in the short end. But for my mortgage, I want a 30-year mortgage. So I'm affecting what's happening in the long end. People are coming around to this and Philip Turner, Ben Bernanke, Stan Fisher, BIS. Now there's growing recognition that my students at the Fed and my friends at the ECB are taking demographics into account. And now if you do a Google search, you'll get far more papers than when I was the Lone Ranger saying that demographics affects interest rates. But it's coming around. It's slow. And also the talks given at the Institute of Actuaries hopefully have helped convert some actuaries into trying to interface with actuarial science, with economics and finance. Again, just before you move on to real estate. So in that equity formula, Obviously, the top level there was dividend policy and dividends are impacted by profit, of course, but they're also impacted by dividend policy within a firm. And so the people at the helm of that firm, I guess, have a bit of a say in what that formula looks like. Do you have any insights in terms of how that decision process has changed over time and how it might change in the future and therefore what that means for the structure? of equity Yeah, returns? exactly. In fact, one of my close friends, no longer alive, late Professor Sudipta Bhattacharya wrote the most influential paper on dividend policy as part of his PhD in MIT. And it was called the Dividend Signaling Hypothesis. And also in 2001, 2002, I did come back and say a lot of people will hold blue chip shock stocks as they grow older rather than sell their stocks because there was a theory by people in Wharton, by Jeremy Siegel, that as people get old at 65, I should sell all my stocks and go into treasury bills. I said, how will I get good prices if I sell to a smaller, younger generation? And there are many of us selling. And who knows whether I've saved enough for next 20 years, 25 years. And therefore, many people still hold stocks because they are giving them dividends as regular things. So the decision to give dividends depends again on Corporate finance, corporate finance now thinks about share buybacks, thinks about private issuance, thinks about leverage loans, etc. Corporate finance is far more, what should I say, complex. And what comes into play out there is essentially something very important. And this is what strategy professors at Harvard tell me when they go and see 
company number one, which is one of the biggest pharma companies in Europe versus one of the biggest pharma companies in US. The only thing which differs out there is the vision and the risk aversion of the CEO. So here we are back again to giving the same gamble. What's your corporate objective? How do you look at dividends? Do you want to reinvest in your company? Do you want to kind of give dividends back to shareholders? All those things depend on how you view the landscape of investment opportunities, risks, and also how is your corporate contract right? So corporate compensation in lots of cases is tied to what returns you're making for the company. If those returns are going to be more uncertain, some people may want to take that risk, some people may not. So again, risk becomes very, very important and psychology becomes important. I still remember one of the biggest psychology professors came to the University of Iowa called Lola Lopez, and she's an expert on risk-taking and psychology. And the business school said, come in because you will tell us about risk better than anyone who's learned derivatives, math, and we had the best optimization gurus in the world. The guy who has the fastest optimization algorithm. We would go and listen to her to try to understand what she's learned about the psyche of risk-taking. So Anna Wintour is a very different Anna Wintour today in terms of when she's growing Vogue than when you look at her 20 years ago. So we need to understand that risk-taking of people is different and varies over the cycle on learning. If I'm a rigid person, I don't learn and I'm stuck in a risk module of earlier, I may let opportunities pass by. On the other hand, if I'm a gambler, I could bring down things. So it's very important to keep in mind in finance, risk-adjusted return. So when is it good to take the risk? When is it good to kind of have that risk tolerance too? Now, I go back to something again, which came about in your, everyone asks me which countries are important. I say countries which are important are countries which are also very nimble, quick at decision-making, which can make decisions. And we find that there's a paralysis of action in big democratic countries. And that was something articulated by my friend Martin Wolf at our conference too. The crisis of democratic capitalism. We find that, Smaller countries like the Nordic countries, like Singapore and others are quick at decision-making. They can influence their population. They're far more homogeneous in decision-making. Bigger countries where you've got coalitions, partial decision-making, they don't make decisions that fast. So I do think progressive countries which are trying to change the Nordic countries, Netherlands, and countries focused more on things for the future generation, whether it be climate change, sustainability, are likely to do better. I do think that some countries which make decisions quicker may not be the best of countries. They could be dictatorships. They could also be the bigger countries, as we are seeing, making very, very quick decisions, much more than other democratic countries. Europe is sometimes plagued by paralysis of decision-making and a lot of bureaucracy. But then we see some countries, and they may be huge, but they're making quick decisions because their decision-makers are a little bit more forceful. And their countries like China, India, Russia, Mexico, Turkey, Brazil come to mind somewhat. Amlan, thank you. And if you were to summarise, we've covered so much ground today, but if you were to summarise, what would be your one key message for listeners to take away from today? Demographics requires attention and careful attention in conjunction with other disciplines such as finance, economics, actuarial science, history. So as Peter Drucker said, pay careful attention to it. Do not harp on demographics being destiny by itself. Thank you. And I know you've come prepared for this one. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners of any books or programs that you think they should 
check out. Yes, given the geopolitical situation of the world, it's the same book that I recommended in the conference. It's Three Decades in Advance, Clash of Civilizations by Sam Huntington articulates the state of the world today. Another book which makes people like me humble is a book written by my professor, Don now Deirdre McCloskey called If You're So Smart, dot, 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 saying economists are siloed, blinkered. Somewhat also actuaries are similar to it. Just because I know maths does not mean I know the whole world. The third two books are by people who invented defined contribution. And this is a lesson that every UK pension fund person should get. Who invented defined contribution of 401kx? Number one, Peter Drucker said, move away from defined benefit pension plans. Number two, Franco Modigliani. And the book by Franco Modigliani, Rethinking Pension Reform, says, move away even from DC. Neither DC is a solution, nor is DB. Move to hybrid pension plans because DB overpromises, DC underdelivers, and the middle pathway may be better. And that's what many other countries are doing. So Unseen Revolution by Peter Drucker and Rethinking Pension Reform by Modigliani and Murlidhar are good books for everyone in UK's pension system to read because even within UK, we are so siloed that people talk about DC yet don't understand who invented DC. Absolutely. And one book you haven't mentioned, but I'll plug for you, is your own book, which I've got in front of me, which you very kindly signed for me today, Demographics Unraveled. It's been a really interesting read. I definitely recommend it. I thank you for that because I did a book launch and talk and the whole audience and my daughters chastised me for talking about clash of civilizations <laughs> and mentioning my book only once. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we will include links to all of those in the show notes. Amlan, it's been such a good conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I hope it was useful. It was. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.